Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA monthly livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to our monthly live stream Q&A session. Before we get started, now's a good time to get your questions in, uh, but some of you may have noticed that we went live this morning at 9 o'clock or so in the morning, and uh, that was me doing a sound and audio check on the thing real quick before we uh, get prepping for the live stream, and I accidentally hit the streaming button instead of the recording button, so we did go live for probably about 30 seconds of me seeing it with head frazzled and uh, in my pajamas. So for those of you who managed to catch that, we will never speak of it again. Anyway, <laughs> uh, as we get into the questions today, again, sorry for anyone who did not get the notification until relatively late on this. It reset everything without me noticing and I was running my way out the door at the time. Alright. Um, have we actually got any questions in yet? Always a moment there, getting started. Uh, first question is from Divide by Zero, Get Cake. Hey all, what's a science fiction movie that's ridiculous but you still find fun? Um, I guess the classic for that one is always going to be Planet Nine from, uh, or Beyond Planet Nine from Outer Space. It's a really bad film from the 50s, I think, that, uh, you can actually see the UFOs hanging out the wires in it, but, uh, it's one of those ones where it's so bad it's good, uh, as opposed to so bad it's bad, like the Battlefield Earth uh, movie from around 2000 or so, which was just that bad. And I actually had a roommate just after that because I was uh, we used to go watch a uh, film in finals week, uh, and I had to go on an internship right after that down to uh, the Air Force uh, Institute of Technology down in Dayton. And one of my roommates, Matt Campbell. Um, He'd said, oh, the book is so much better than, than the movie. And I was inclined to believe this because this is usually the case. And I was reading through it and it was the first time I'd ever read something where the book was actually even worse than the movie and the movie was so bad. And, you know, so, <laughs> Our next question, while well, we got one coming in here, is a uh, question, how will police automation, if it ever happens, affect society? We actually decided last night during our brainstorm session for a couple episodes in uh, in May and June that we we're going to do an episode on Space Police, so we'll have to look at that a bit more um, then, but uh, <clears throat> how will automation affect police society? Um, traffic cameras would be kind of your first one that we do that for barcodes on uh, license plates so they can be hit with a reader on the front of the vehicle. Those are a source of a great deal of debate these days, whether or not it's okay to have traffic cameras giving people speeding tickets or, you know, having something that reads license plates. But those are the kind of things we'd start to have expected to come in there. Other ones would be like everyone's phone app might have um, not just the ability to call 911, but as we get a little bit better with uh, that kind of um, voice technology, we might start having the point where everybody had a duress board, for instance, something they, very strange word, they could just shout that would, their phone would hear it and say, uh-oh, call 911. And that would flip on your GPS and potentially your camera or things like that too. Right now we got cameras on the phone, but as that technology gets better with things like Bluetooth technology and bandwidth and better batteries, it wouldn't be that weird for somebody to maybe be wearing a lapel pin, kind of like a lot of police officers have the body camera. And that might only go live when you want it to, but a lot of folks might carry something around like that on them kind of recording all the time. And a case like that, if that just goes live, the police can suddenly see exactly what would be going on in your immediate vicinity. <clears throat> Especially if those are small enough that you could have multiple ones around your person. And they could, you know, that would be a, quite a problem for anyone who's trying to mug you as they get, you know, a nice little snapshot of them or a mug shot. And, of course, you'd have all those other people nearby. If you got everyone's ability to ping, and beside the privacy issues, this kind of thing is to play, um, you would be able to just, you know, start talking off other people who are in the nearby area to see who was there and whose cameras were alive so you get an extra view of, like, the 
perpetrate a running way, things like that. So, of course, there's also the predictive policing into things too. And, and we'll explore all that more when we uh, look at, uh, well, I think we'll do a space police episode, but we'll look at law enforcement in general in a futuristic context and probably early to mid-June. Kaga <clears throat> right. asks, uh, Kaga13 asks, thoughts on John Scalzi's Old Man War series? Can't remember you mentioning it. It seems heavily up the group's ally. Hmm. Um, I have read it, but it's been a while, so, and I've only read the first book. Um, probably going to have to punt on that one, but there's often the kind of context we can start dealing with relativity in science fiction. I remember that from the book series. You get the slower than light travel or, um, you know, uh, how much time puts you away from things. That's also something we saw in Endor's game, and we were going to be doing another episode, actually. Uh, I think it was pulling high on Patreon right now is whether or not we do one on space warfare or sublight logistics. So those will be things we probably want to explore there, but I can't talk too much about Scalzi series because it's just not pinging a memory for me right now, unfortunately. Uh, <clears throat> Jacob asks, who would govern, go- govern an orbital ring on Earth? What would happen if two nations with connections to it were at war? If you only had the one orbital ring, and you'd start with the equatorial one, you can do other ones at other angles, but they take a little bit more effort then yeah, you've got a bit of a problem, but it's going to be one very similar to what you have for like sea lanes or shared freight rails. Um, you probably would have, if you got two countries involved in it, you probably have more than a few. And you might say, like, let's say it was one that passed through most of Europe, uh, the United States and um, Southeast Asia. So getting a ring angle on that. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, you might say, well, the United States is at war with Thailand. And so you got, uh, you know, five or six European countries that pass through who could just say, well, during the duration of this conflict, by the treaty that we have, uh, we oversee both of your ports for you. You know, that way you don't have to worry about the other guys shipping weapons around through that or, or breaking embargoes and trade. We'll oversee that. So that might be an example of how you could do that. But the biggest problem with an orbital ring is that it does – it pretty much by definition, does have to go around other places. Now, there are some angles, like neopolar angles, where you could actually have it just go through one or two countries uh, and a lot of ocean, but what's the real economic value of that? And I said, well, if you just want to have an orbital ring, but you don't actually have to have an orbital ring to take advantage of that level of, of the space launch. It's nice, it's it's your most economic version, but we do have that same active support technology available for truncated things like the Lofstrom loop or just a space tower or a pair of space towers that connect a big ramp between them, for instance. So there are options. You don't actually have to do a complete one around the planet, and it actually technically does not actually have to be a uh, a circle or even a ellipse. It could be a bit of weird angles and cores you really want to. The big problem, though, is the orbital ring as a launch vehicle, because an orbital ring just takes you up into space. You're not actually in orbit yet. You're just at that altitude, is that you can run across it and you know speed up while you're running around it. And you can only turn so fast at things like that because you got a turning radius that exposes you to a lot of curve, like when you're on the road. Um, what's nice about an orbital ring is you can actually run around the thing upside down so that Earth's gravity is pulling down on you and that it gives you a little bit of an extra uh, acceleration to get away with so you can get up much faster. <clears throat> That's why you really want that ring or ellipses so you can do that, take advantage of that to exit that uh, thing at the maximum speed you can pull off. Uh, <clears throat> um, let's see. Thank you, Mo Johnson. Many industries will always require gravity to operate. So what might an industrial park be like in an O'Neill cylinder? Hmm. I mean, I guess you, know, you could have industries inside it, but in a lot of cases, your orbital, I mean, your industrial park would probably be, you know, a separate facility outside that uh, O'Neill cylinder because, again, you don't actually have to have it on the inside. And if it's on the inside, it's maybe a little bit more convenient, but there are all sorts of ways you can make like a fast train to take you from inside the O'Neill cylinder to nearby habitats that are tethered to it, smaller stations, for instance. And that lets you control the gravity to what you want. And it also means that, you know, if I if I need low gravity inside an O'Neill cylinder, I can put a facility up in the airways, hanging down from the central axis. Um, so it's got lower gravity. And then I'm doing some chemical work in there. And if that goes off, that's going to fall down on top of everybody in terms of all those chemicals dispersing. When you can just go ahead and build another space station nearby, relatively cheap one, uh, you know, relatively speaking, and just have stuff there. So there would be dynamics to that, of course. It just kind of depends on what you're aiming for in terms of, you know, workforce going there or back, whether or not there's even a workforce going to the factory or not. As they might just be telepresence operators. 
Andrew Hub asks, what will the first interstellar mission look like? Will it be a national mission, international, private, etc.? Um, I would just guess the very first one would be international, uh, just because it's always a little bit easier to handle those things if you got multiple people with stakes in the game. Uh, and there would be a lot of people who'd want to sign on for that. But it might be a single nation doing it or even a private one. And it kind of depends on what we mean by interstellar mission. Are we talking about just sending a probe out? Or are we talking about sending out a big old generation ship or something in between? Um, it would depend way too much on the landscape. Like if we had the technology to do it right now today, presumably it would either be the United States or it would be like, uh, you know, a group of various nations, same as we have for the ISS. But if we wait 20 years, it could be a completely different story. Uh, um, thank you, Calvin McGowan. Um, if the universe is 85% dark matter, we'll get to that in a second, then why isn't there a ton of dark matter at the bottom of every gravity well? The sun, for example, seems like it should be a dark matter vacuum. Uh, that's not quite right. The universe is about 85%, well, it's a little bit more that, dark matter and dark energy. Most of it's dark energy. Dark matter outnumbers regular matter about 5 to 1. I suppose that probably is my, that probably is close to 85%, but the majority of the universe is that dark energy. Now, as to why it's not all over the place, the thing about gravity is that it's only going to suck things into its you know, gravity well when they're getting bumped around by stuff. Like, if I'm going near a black hole, unless I'm on a direct trajectory for it, I'm going to swing around that thing and then fall into a very elliptical orbit. Um, the only reason you can kind of slow down a case like that and fall into a more stable orbit or have things like plants forming where all the things all clump together is because they're banging off each other. Dark matter is assumed to have all gotten basically the speed it is right now during the early phase of the Big Bang, right? All those particles are moving around, and those that have a high enough, uh, you know, a relatively slow velocity, but still fairly high compared to most interstellar objects, uh, they kind of float around the galaxy in a halo uh, because nothing ever bangs in them, including other dark matter. They just stay on that orbit pretty much forever other than being perturbed by gravity the only thing that's going to stop one of them is to run into a black hole and those have a very very tiny you know you know cross section of, of collision um so that's the reason why it's not clumping up there is dark matter in the solar system or in other solar systems or so we assume it, we've been testing for that stuff and of course i'm sure you're all aware the dark matter experimentation is slow and uh, not as successful as you'd like to pin the stuff down but as best we can tell from what we can find the stuff does itself move rather slowly it's just nothing ever collides with it to slow it down more so that's why you're not getting clumpy around like that and again the density of a galaxy is very thin if we just see it clump up in things like stars because all those things can bang off each other all those individual atoms can bang off and clump together in the absence of those collisions everything just stays on a trajectory around with affected by gravity um, Sam Biswas asks, do you have any thoughts of making a video about pair terraforming? I hope this doesn't sound vague to you because my English isn't that good. Well, it works for me. Pair terraforming is different than terraforming in the sense that when we say pair terraforming, that's when you got all your domes or glass houses on a planet or you're boring into lava tubes to make them, you know, habitable by capping them off or things like that and then pressurizing them. Um, I'd say probably our original colonizing Mars and colonizing Venus episodes were pair terraforming episodes, same for like moon-based concepts or battle for the moon. Uh, a lot of the Outward Bound series focuses on the pair terraforming angle first and then later in the given episode we'll talk about some of the more high-end terraforming concepts. But uh, I mean just a straight up pair terraforming episode, maybe. We have thought about it before but I think that's an example of one of those episodes we thought about a lot but it's never turned into an episode because we're not really sure what there'd be to discuss beyond you can do this with domes. <clears throat> Thank you John DeHady. Do you have a video on a species of incorporeal aliens? If not, would you be interested in making one and maybe sharing your initial thoughts here? Um, we do have one other, I'm actually, it's the one I'm writing right now, Benevolent Aliens, which will come out sometime in late May, early June 2. It's episode 241. Um, but uh, I don't think there's one on incorporeal aliens yet, um, unless you count aloof aliens, the one we did back in November or December. Um, kind of because that's, I, I think that would probably stick with aloof aliens unless we ever did one on, on alternate dimensions. And we do actually have an episode on alternate uh, realities coming up, but it's more focused on the concepts as opposed to civilizations inside them. Uh, um, but it is one we'd probably get around to doing at some point. Uh, so many episodes, so little time. Fitting Gavos Haven asks, how about life on a planet with high gravity? 
We have an episode on low gravity coming up, um, and that would tend to imply we do one on high gravity too, but a lot of times I try a new episode on a topic where it seems like there would be a good sequel, so I always like to see if that episode turns out to be well-liked for us before we consider committing to another episode on it. But yeah, if the low gravity episode is popular, we'll go ahead and do a high gravity one too. Um, Sooth and Scientist asks, what timeline do you estimate for colonization of the solar system? Um, hmm. You know, I get asked sometimes because I actually gave some loose dates inside the Outward Bound series episodes, the earlier ones, and what the timeline for that was. And uh, of course, I'll say 20 years later from the previous one or things like that. But I picked those completely out of a hat. Uh, I think we'd set the colonizing Mars one in the uh, early 20, late 22nd, early 23rd century and did the colonizing Pluto one in the year 2700 just because that was uh, the date I picked there. I don't know if anyone caught it was the next time or second next time that Pluto would be the eighth planet instead of the ninth planet uh, closer to Neptune. But, um, uh, you know, there's timelines for things like that. What timeline did the North American continent get settled? Was it 1492? Was it 1776? Was it 6,000 years ago? It's kind of hard to say, or 20,000 years ago. Um, colonization is not going to be an even kind of thing. It's going to be various waves and, and changing ways of what people are focused on. We talk about colonizing the asteroid belt, for instance, we'll say you get out there with asteroid miners, and then you'd have a second wave unrelated to it, uh, much as Silicon Valley in California has really nothing to do with the gold rush of 1849. So you get these multiple stages, but I, I do think we'll have a permanent base this century, even if it's on the moon and it's only like you know, 10 people. But I think we probably will have something like McMurdo level, uh, McMurdo Antarctica level on the moon for the end of the century. And then after that, it just depends on whether our asteroid mine turns out to be profitable. Um, <clears throat> and say we can do asteroid mining, but we might get better at something like uh, Moho mining on Earth or much better, you know, extraction process here on Earth and suddenly that's less attractive. It's just hard to say how that will work out timeline-wise. Felix Shaw asks, have you heard of hydrogen boron fusion power and what do you think about the technology? Um, there is a, there was a couple, the one that came to mind is probably not the one you're thinking of, but it was, it was a, and I'm not even going to give the name of it, it was a cord fusion system from many years back. So I, I'm, I'm betting that's not the one you're thinking of, but that's the one I can think of at the moment. Um, other than the actual process involving hydrogen boron inside stars. Uh, Septonian Cosman asks, would it be easier to build two orbital rings on Earth and have them lift each other up by adding modules rather than lifting all that mass in space via spaceships? I'm not sure what you're quite picturing there, but you could potentially build an orbital ring across the planet um, and like hold it up with uh, helium balloons and then get it nice and taut and speed up and lift it that way, but I suspect you would find it to be easier to put up, uh, you know, one that weighed maybe, you know, maybe a, a million tons uh, around the entire planet first, or, or a thousand tons, you might be able to get that small, yeah, and then just bootstrap up off of that. Uh, you know, you get a ring up there, and then you drag the components for a bigger ring up on top of that, and so forth. <clears throat> or you manufacture the first one off materials you got from Mars or some asteroid. Thank you, Moe Johnson. Adding water to a torch drive can increase thrust because of a linear relationship for exhaust velocity and thrust, but a square relationship for thrust and mass flow. How? More propellant but same net energy production? I'm, I'm afraid I'm not too clear what you're actually asking there. Uh, the rocket equation can be kind of confusing to folks at times because the trick is that the exhaust velocity is always the same relative to the ship. So the reason why you always need more fuel to get to a, a higher speed is because your own fuel is, begins to exit you uh, moving forward relative to the people that are stationary. So like, let's say I'm on my way up to orbit and to get to orbit, I have to be going, say 10 kilometers a second to get the math easy. But my propellant goes five kilometers a second out the back of my ship. Once I'm up to five kilometers a second, the stuff that's actually coming out of my ship is now stationary relative to the ground, right? It's coming out as a cloud that would fall right back down. Once up to 10 kilometers a second, uh, you know, the, the stuff is actually following me at 5 kilometers a second. So you're getting on the same kinetic energy boost, right? It's just that um, you uh, you do have that diminishing return aspect that's going off of that, and that can confuse people sometimes. But for torch drives, unless you're referring to something else, I don't think that's a linear relationship the way you're referring to it, too. But that might have gotten messed up on pasting or something. Uh, this is new. Good day, Isaac. Can you conceive some form of alien biology where Darwinianism doesn't apply? Thank you for your work. Sure. Boltzmann brains. Um, 
a Boltzmann brain is by definition not something that evolved. Um, now you could have in between stages, for instance, right? You could have something that that was a simplistic uh, Boltzmann brain type device that 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 grew to be something more complicated. But um, the whole idea is there is that you have, and this is a big one about evolutionary theory that tends to get so left out on this is it's not random luck, it's random mutation that over many generations of hereditary is improving those things that you're not following every last random thing. With something like a Boltzmann brain, that's exactly what it is, is 100% random. And that's why they're so insanely statistically improbable. But um, uh, you wouldn't really expect anything that followed that context otherwise, because that's, you'd have to be looking someplace where that wouldn't apply. There might be other universes, for instance, where that might be more logical, but not the way we tend to, you know, say, we hunt on the assumption that evolution is correct, so we're not going to likely find any place where that wouldn't be applying. <laughs> so, all right. Um, <clears throat> Janaringa asks, if we are indeed the first life in our galaxy, do you think we have a moral, obliga- moral obligation to green the galaxy? No. Uh, I think we should. I think that it would be wrong not to try to colonize the whole galaxy and terraform it and make it great, but a moral obligation? No. Um, you know, it's a mistake, in my opinion, this is just a, a personal matter of ethics, it's a mistake to turn anything that you feel passionate about doing into a moral obligation. We don't have any moral obligation to go out there and, and make the universe green anymore than we have a moral obligation to some species we might encounter to help them out and give them technology. It's what I'd want to do, I think it's the right thing to do, but I wouldn't call it a moral obligation. Um, Calvin McGowan, thank you very much, asks... Um, in games, I'll sometimes rush a tech to get it before I ordinarily would. Uh, this presumably being 4X games. Gunpowder in the Bronze Age, etc. I do that all the time. <laughs> what tech would be the best to rush in real life, assuming this is even possible, and make enough of a difference to be worth it? We have two that we always fixate on for post-scarcity civilizations, and that's uh, self-replicating machines, or something really close to it, like a clanking replicator. Uh, and of course fusion, uh, but what we really mean is abundant energy or abundant manpower. So any technology that you either one of those or the ones you'd want to, as we say, uh, rush the tech tree with. Um, uh, thank you, Matt Parks or at Parks. <laughs> These don't always pace well. What's the most alien form of alien life you've come across in sci-fi or could imagine yourself? Um, hmm. It kind of depends on what you mean, um, because a lot of times you can come to something that's really biologically weird, but or that they just have many properties. But that's kind of the realism that's involved. It's it's kind of like when they do comic book super characters X versus Y, and say, well, you know, there's no character more powerful than this one. It's like, well, there's always one random character nobody cares about that you know was listed by some random writer who was lazy as being much much more powerful by something they did. Um, how weird of an alien life form can we make? There's always be something really weird, right? To me, the weirder aliens are the ones where the author has actually taken the time to really talk about how it could be functional. Um, you know, like um, for those of you who read uh, Orson Scott Card's uh, book, uh, Speaker for the Dead, um, that is uh, the, uh, I can't remember what they're called, the Piggy is a different name. Uh, they are portrayed to us with a, a uh, depth that makes them very alien, not because they are all that alien compared to some other aliens you might see in science fiction. But because from the get-go, there's this alien concept there that the author explores in deep detail. Whereas even we get a lot of information about a given alien species in a sci-fi series, usually like with the Klingons, it starts off one way and changes a lot of time. Like if you're watching the original Star Trek, the Klingons and that are not really that much like the ones from Next Generation, let alone from Deep Space Nine, let alone from the new series. I gather I've only watched about four episodes of Discovery so far. Um... And, uh, you know, it's kind of layered on semi-paradoxical, you know, contradictory information about those species as new writers try to put onto it. But when an author really takes their time to develop something like that, and again, that's a good example, is Orson Scott Carl's Piggies from uh, Speaker for the Dead. Um, Let's see. Thank you very much, Ryan Founds. And he says, thank you, Isaac, for creating great content. You're very welcome. Uh, AFN Capella asks, can you appreciate sci-fi that didn't age well? What are deal breakers? What intrigues you as examples? Um, there are quite a few that don't really age well in some regards. Others do. Um, I was just recently finishing up. Uh, it's it's a, um, was a 
Uh, Lord of Light by Roger Zelazny is a fantasy novel, sorry, sci-fi novel. Masquerade is a fantasy novel. Masquerade is a sci-fi novel. A lot of Roger Zelazny's sci-fi is, I hate to say he's one of the most popular authors of his period, but hasn't really carried over well to the modern era. Probably because he only got a TV show for, uh, for the shows yet. But um, that book uh, carries over very well because he didn't really focus too much on the on certain, he writes to a different kind of flavor of things. I recently read uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Out of the Silent Planet, uh, which was uh, an omnibus that my fiance got me for Christmas. And um, it ages well in some regards, but then not so much in others. The science from that period that he is discussing we kind of doesn't fit too well, but then a lot of the plot and a lot of the concepts fit together very well. So, yeah, you know, same for a lot of things like uh, space opera tends to age well because it never was really all that focused on scientific realism. Um, but uh, I say, was it the Lensman series uh, by E. Doc Smith was almost always made like the top five or six best sci-fi series, but hasn't really aged too well. And then so you don't see on too many of those lists nowadays. So there are quite a few good series from that. And then it's, you have to read them to what's appropriate for uh, you know what the author was going for at the time and not get too focused on the, the bad science when they had that in there. Uh, DSS conspiracy theorists said smashing atoms together in a large hadron collider would result in a black hole. Was this an actual real concern among scientists? I was about to say no, but um, that's an unfair statement. Every so often, you have someone say, "Well, this person's a crank; they're not a real scientist," and say, "Nah, it's a bad approach. This person's a crank and a real scientist." And I say, "Well, you know, a scientist supposed to be a very rational person." And say. If you think that your scientists are supposed to be very rational people, you've not read very many biographies of these people. So quite a few of our best scientists were quite nuts. And that, that whole genius versus insanity thing, gray line, is uh, telling. So um, yes, a person could be a real scientist and wrong or crazy or conspiratorial about things. But I would say that it, just in general, barring a few exceptions, I don't think there was anybody who really thought the Hadron Collider amongst physicists. I don't know about other scientists, but I'd say amongst particle physicists who would be having opinions of that that were valid on that matter, I don't recall anybody that I knew who thought it was a real concern. I did not at that time. Um, but uh, the real concern on that one wasn't whether or not the current theory would get us up to it. It was could the theory be wrong? And this was basically Hawking's theory. And we had at that point in time never actually absorbed a black hole. Right? That's a very new thing. Nor we even really pinned any down in terms of the... Uh, you know, for sure, this is definitely a black hole in other locations, which strongly imply, but that's about it. Um, and uh, we don't know that naturally forming ones really have the properties based on mass, you know, cube of mass for like lifetime, things like that, that we were assuming that would just translate down to the micro scale. So I wouldn't go so far as to say it was a wrong issue to have raised to think about, but it was not really all that much of a concern. You start talking about, well, what we don't know for sure. If you're taking that attitude, you just say, well, we don't know for sure that if we run this collider, it's not going to produce a mountain full of leprechauns. You know, you got to have some basis for suspecting why it's going to do this thing you're not expecting it to. And um, a lot of the logic on why it might create a black hole was better than the idea that it might create a bunch of leprechauns, but it gets pretty thin. Uh, Zalcyon asks, what was your job in the army and how do you see it changing in the near and far future? Writing a book and my experience with a human. Um... You know, my best friend was in Intel before he switched over to artillery. My MOS was field artillery at first. Later, it was logistics after I got back from my second uh, second tour of service. Um, but uh, it was in artillery, and I when they found out I had a degree, because I, I joined when I was in grad school, um, and I enlisted to, they started finding ways to dump a lot of the more technical and paperwork stuff on my uh, desk. And the unit itself was being converted over to fielding as a scratch infantry company because you just don't need that much artillery when occupying a country that is, you know, at peace with you and friendly in theory. Um, and uh, so we mostly did infantry work. We were an artillery unit, though. Um, but uh, a lot of my work, besides when they had me get stuck helping out on various tech and admin things, and doing a lot of teaching with the new equipment we had, was fixing guns, repairing guns, training people on how to use them, small arms and other equipment. Um, you know, like the, uh, it's always my favorite gun. I was very fond of the M16 Alpha 4 over the M4, uh, as opposed to the Alpha 2. And uh, I liked the 50 cal, but I did not like a lot of the other, sort, well, of course, I like the Mark 19. That's a machine gun that fires grenades off. Um, but um, I would say that 
yeah, changed a lot, a lot of jobs. You, they tend to tended to use me a lot to put out files. It was so I was all NBC guy for a while. I was all laser safety radiation officer for a while, and uh, that's not unusual though. A lot of people end up doing go for work in the military. You just send people to fix something, and if they succeed in fixing it, you say, "Oh, well, you're busy. Uh, we, you know, let's we're going to ask you to fix this other problem too." So, <laughs> but uh, the official MOS was field artillery. Um, Alexander Potichev asks, uh, what would be the impact of self-replicating nanobots in the real world? Uh, depends on what kind of ones they wore. Like we can see the paperclip maximizer for an idea of how that can work. And, uh, but we did a couple nanorobots and self-replicating machines in the episode, um, nanorobots and self-replicating machines, I believe was the name of that episode. Um, and I think that it's all about how you got them set up in terms of can you get them the energy you need? Can you get rid of the heat issues? Are they small enough without being too fragile? And you got like the sticky fingers problem we discussed in the Santa Claus machine episode. Um, so the impact though, if it's good enough, um, is pretty staggering. And again, it depends on how good it is. If they're good enough to actually do molecular assembly at, at a, a decent pace, then lots of things change. You could you know, be turning stuff into almost anything you want out of garbage. Um, the first time that really ever hit me, uh, in the early 90s, I collected comic books, which was quite a popular thing back then, uh, Marvel comics, and I got very addicted to the Doom 2099 series, uh, which features Doctor Doom as a nominal protagonist, I won't go as far as a hero, and he experiments with using uh, self-replicating machines for a while, and I always wonders why they didn't use them, because you can do almost anything with them. You can turn garbage into food, things like that. Um, so you can't really predict what the actual impacts would be industrially until we actually had some working ones, but in the medical world, it's huge because industry is seen as like 3d printing. You have to worry about whether that's more economic than just doing it with a factory, a regular old factory, but you can't really fix humans currently with, uh, you know, the way you can just, you know, manufacture a hammer. So you can do that with nanotechnology because you don't really care if it costs you a million dollars to do that to a person, uh, whereas you never obviously used to be like that for manufacturing something, um, you know, human-sized. All right, uh, last quick question before we go to our break. Um, Dustin Adams asks, have you read Orson Scott Card's Homecoming series? I have not, or maybe I read the first few chapters of one of the books, but I, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't actually had occasion to read it. All right, we're going to go to break and we'll see you in a few minutes. So we'll be on break for a few minutes and it's a great time to grab a drink and a snack or get some more questions in for our moderators. We don't usually get to all the questions so if we miss yours, feel free to post it as a comment on the episode and I'll swing by sometime later to try to get to those too. However, I tend to get a lot more questions on the episodes than I can ever hope to answer personally, especially these days as we creep up on half a million subscribers. So we have forums to continue the conversations. There's our main Facebook group, Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, along with our second Facebook group, Futurism and Society, where more controversial topics are fair game. We also have our Reddit group, our Discord group, and our website's forum at IsaacArthur.net, and on these forums you can find all sorts of fascinating conversation. There are also the places, along with Patreon, where we source a lot of topics and polls, either picking episodes there or taking the top 5 for a poll here on YouTube. So if you have episode suggestions, those are the places to go. You can find them linked in the episode descriptions every week. I also want to take a moment to thank all our patrons over on Patreon. They not only have kept the show funded and running all these years, but they're actually my favorite source of episode topics, as they tend to be our long-term audience, with the best notion of what we already looked at and what tends to be my wheelhouse for topics, not to mention being one of our biggest sources of volunteers helping out on scripts and animations. We are always looking for more volunteers too, and on pretty much every aspect of the show. I did want to highlight our very first volunteer, Jacob Greigel, who does all that beautiful cover art for the episodes, and he's still as active as he was when he joined us, back when us was just me, around episode 20, and I wanted to give him a special shout out and thanks today. It's a bit strange that this show has become, in many ways, a crowdsourced project at most levels and I've come to believe that's not only a pretty neat approach, but a very good one that others should give a try. I've built a lot of friendships over the years with this show too, and even ignoring all the help I've gotten from it in making the episodes better, the crowdsource approach was worth it just for all those friendships. Alright, let's get back to the show.
Okay, well, then we're back. Um, President Kang asked, is that a Kang and Kodos reference from The Simpsons? Uh, President Kang asked, if you send one message back in time to yourself in the year 1999, what would you send? Um, hmm. In 1999, probably don't worry so much about Y2K and then probably make a quick call to the Twin Towers. Um, a year or two later. Independent Rider asks, Isaac, any plans to look into the world of cryonics? Yes, we we mean to do that episode for a long time, and then we did the Sleeper Ships episode um, for the Generation Ship series, and we covered enough of it there that I felt like was kind of covered for a bit, but we will actually do an episode on that at some point. The problem is that to do that, I always feel like I should reach out to like Alcor or one of the other Cryonics companies and see if they want to collaborate, and uh, I keep forgetting to do that, and that has additional lead time on it. Um, but yeah, we will do an episode on Cryonics at some point, I'm sure. Uh, Owen Taylor asks... If you could wish for any piece of clock tech common to science fiction, which one would you pick? Um, Star Trek Warp Drive, probably. Uh, if you can get to these other places fast, that changes the game quite a lot. Um, actually, a perpetual motion machine, because I'd rather just be able to keep things going indefinitely rather than get from point A to point B faster and faster. But one of those two. Um... Zilla Squad asks, where do you get the background art from? Uh, it really depends. Sometimes we get it from stock food sources. Uh, and I talk about that more in, I think, the 250,000 subscriber special from a couple years back. Um, a lot of it's made in-house, of course, too. And uh, we have a bunch of artists. And whenever we feature one of the ones by any of the artists who help animate for the show, you sometimes you'll see their logo on the actual animation. I encourage them to do that so they can you know get acknowledged for their work. But we also put them in the credit roll at the end of episodes. And you can also check those out in the descriptions of the episodes. We have these very long descriptions, and some of them we have them linked to like their, uh, you know, their art page over at ArtStation or DeviantArt or some of the other ones. And I would encourage you to check those out because, you know, these are very nice animations they do. But the ones they do in their spare time, a lot of their uh, work that's more serious is actually even better, and it's uh, it's amazing quality. And if I haven't mentioned it, it is actually just awesome to work with those folks. There is kind of like a feedback loop between science fiction writers, uh, science fiction artists and sci-fi artists and uh, scientists that like is just they all kind of feed on each other to improve. So it's and it's quite a lot of fun to actually get to be involved in that environment for what I do, which is kind of talking about all three. So um, Thomas O'Brien asks, hi, what do you think of the Busard Ramjet as seen Tau Zero? Um, you know, I know that uh, we talked about that and was it? The very original interstellar colonization episode back in December or January of 2015-16. Um, one of the like the original 10 episodes on the show or 12 episodes on the show. Um, I don't know if I've covered it since then. No, we would have covered it at least briefly in this Spaceship Proportion Compendium, which was the first episode I ever did by uh, by a poor suggestion. That was uh, Drew McTighe, who was actually one of our admins and moderators of, on the Facebook page, as well as being one of our Patreon supporters. Um, and uh, there's a chance Drew's watching right now. He does tend to catch the episodes even all these years later, so hi, Drew. Um, and uh, Spaceship Propulsion Companion was a very fun episode to do, even though it went over 40 minutes. Normally, I don't like to do episodes over 40 minutes anymore because they're rather exhausting, but that was a fun one. Um, the Busted Ramjet, uh, basic concept for those of you who aren't familiar with it and haven't seen those episodes, you have a basically a fusion drive that runs through interstellar space, and it sucks up hydrogen from the interstellar void, the medium, and it rams it through at high speed and high pressure to create a fusion event and use that for more thrust. In theory, as it gets covered in, in the book Tau Zero, um, which is uh, by Paul Anderson, uh, one, of, one of the great classics, you can get to uh, not obviously the speed of light, but so close to it that your time dilation is ridiculously slow. In practice, you would not be able to get above, uh, I think, a gamble 133, basically where one, two minutes for you was like one second for everybody else. But uh, the system is thought not to be able to walk. Now, you might be able to get around that with um, if you manage to find a way to suck up antimatter instead. And there is an awful lot of antimatter kicking around in the, uh, in the universe, too. Uh, positons and antiprotons. We think there's like a kilogram of antiprotons that passes through our solar system every second. Um, and we're doing an episode on antimatter in a couple months. Um, but... Uh, 
you could also potentially do it with like a micro black hole that you're just feeding matter into and using the Hawking radiation emitted by that to power your thrust too. But and those would still be very like the uh, Bucer ramjet. They're just not using fusion specifically. In practice, these things probably will not work out as well as we would like if, if they work at all. Um, and of course, with something like that, you could potentially also suck in dark matter and use it that way too, if we find some way to manipulate dark matter. Uh, Dobri Vade, whose name I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, thank you very much. I got inspired for my channel in Czech mainly by your channel and Joe Scott, and uh, I love Joe's work. Joe, Joe, I'll, I'll get to the moment for just reading the question. Such a great inspiration. A little question. Where do you find the time to produce so much great content? How many people help you? Oh, we'll get back to Joe for a moment. Uh, Joe Scott and I both started our YouTube channels up about the same time, kind of growing at about the same rate, and uh, we actually all business partners over with Standard, along with uh, folks like Kors Kazakh, um, that... Uh, this is where Nebula, the thing we always talk about, that uh, side project, is also with that. Um, but I've done, I think, three episodes with Joe uh, and uh, maybe an interview or two over there. And Joe is always uh, so much fun to work with. So, um, But uh, where do I find the time to produce so much great content? I've actually gotten faster at it in recent years, uh, the production and the recording end, which has helped out a lot. Um that's why we have bonus episodes rather than just the weekly ones all the time. Now we'll have like one extra bonus episode a month. But um, uh, a lot of that is from all the volunteers that help out on it too. When I first started doing videos, usually it took me like a 30 minute episode would take me about 60, 70 hours to put together. And so we did like those ones that were like 70 minutes long. It wasn't necessarily double as long to do it, but a 70 minute video when we're doing those, those usually took a couple of weeks of like 80 hour work weeks to put together. <laughs> Uh, these days it does run a little bit faster and I think it's a higher quality too because we do get those volunteers and uh, it's hard to say how many there are because folks will be inactive for a while but there are around 100 folks in our production group on Facebook uh, not not our Facebook page it's a secret group obviously so people don't see the scripts and videos come out early but um, you know again check the credit roll you'll see who was working on that episode as an editor and of course there's the folks who show up for the brainstorms um then there's all the moderators and there's just such a big crowd of folks that's basically i think of as a crowdsourced show these days but um <sighs> lots of people help and i am incredibly grateful for their help because it's not just that it saves me a bit of time um it's that it it just makes the episode so much better and so much fun to actually work with them too uh, we did a brainstorm last night. I think I mentioned it earlier. Every well, not, recently we've not been doing them every every couple of weeks. I've been so busy in in real life, as it were. But we used to do them every two weeks, and we'd do a brainstorm for two episodes and uh, spend a couple of hours doing that, and just be uh, you know maybe a dozen or so of us in there on Discord shooting ideas back and forth for a couple of hours. And when it was over, I had a big collection of notes and uh, a massive headache. <laughs> They're great to work with, but it's uh, it is intense to be in one of those brainstorm sessions when they're going in full clips sometimes um and again i i really can't thank them enough for their help they they are friends these days not just folks who help out on the show uh majesty creations asks i've always wondered if nothing can go faster than light how is it the radiation escapes a black hole or how could a black hole dissipate i see there's always a missing question on that we say how can how can radiation get out of a black hole well, it actually does not um, but another question, um, gravity moves at the speed of light and we think it moves the particle called a graviton. How does a graviton, if it's going at the speed of light, get out of a black hole? Uh, of course that gets into your general relativity issues. Now when it comes to something like Hawking radiation, it's not escaping the black hole at all. Um, there's two different ways on paper to look at how that Hawking radiation would take place. Uh, kind of the similar to the Unruh effect method, uh, which is a little bit harder to explain, and then the slightly less accurate but easier to explain virtual particles one. Vertical particles are popping up everywhere all the time in space, and when we talk about this more in the micro black holes episode and some of the other black hole episodes we've done, virtual particles pop up everywhere in space. Um, but when they pop up, it's a particle and it's antiparticle, and they usually self-annihilate. But if there's some place where the gravity is significantly different from one you know, nanometer to another, like at the edge of a very small black hole, there's a decent chance one gets ripped down into the black hole event horizon right below it, and the other does not, and flies away into space, they don't annihilate. That's the virtual photon model for Hawking radiation. Um, now... Um, the, then that, that explains also why you have the bigger ones emit slower. The gravity difference at the event horizon between one nanometer closer or further away from it is much sharper 
by a small black hole than it is by a big black hole. It's not that more of these virtual photon pairs are popping up there than anywhere else in the universe, it's that right there, around really small ones, it's so intense that it's very likely for two virtual photon or particles to be ripped apart and uh, separated and thus one flies off into space of radiation, the other falls down with negative mass and sucks that of the uh, black hole. And that's kind of the cheat for how that's happening. in theory. It would be nice to actually get there and see one of these, but you couldn't actually detect Hawking radiation coming off a natural black hole because it's so minimal that you need the most sensitive equipment we had to look at it even if you were sitting right next to it, and of course you will, you'd be dead. Alright. Martian Lemon asks, did you read Engines of Creation by E. Drexler? Yes. Eric Drexler's uh, work, Engines of Creation from the early or mid-80s, and it's been a very long time since I've read it, and it is, I don't know if I've actually ever read it cover to cover because it's not really a novel. But uh, that is the seminal work for so much what has to do with robotics and nano machines and things like that, and uh, you know, universal assemblers, sub-replicate machines. Uh, if you've not picked it up, I don't know if he's ever done a new edition on it or not. Um, but it, it, you know, it's it's the go-to book. And if you're interested in those topics, yes, Eric Drexler's Individual Creation is the one to to start with. Andres Ligas, and again, I'm sorry I'm mispronouncing people's names. Uh, what is the future of sci-fi in your opinion? Um, hmm. It's always an interesting question. Science fiction looks to the future, and what is the future of science fiction? As long as there are new questions coming out, there's always going to be new sci-fi. But it's also easy to get these things kind of come in waves. Like you look at early science fiction, you've got that handful of works by folks like Jules Vaughn and H.G. Wells, and then some things that we kind of classify as sci-fi, but really weren't intended like that at the time because it really wasn't a genre. And you could like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or arguably stuff like Sherlock Holmes. Um, and then you get kind of in this other phase in the 1920s when it starts popping up, um, kind of like how your comic books evolve out of that. Um, you got that early one where it's kind of like a mixture of comic book type stuff or westerns. And a lot of early science fiction is based westerns in space. If you've seen Firefly, which is obviously not an old classic, uh, um, that's kind of a take on that. It's it's pure up western in space, um, and or things like Flash Gordon, right? Um, then you get kind of a, another phase. I can't remember what it's called, but uh, I think I mentioned Roger Zelazny earlier today. His works in the sixties and seventies. That was I can't remember the name for that era is called of sci-fi, not golden age probably, but uh, there there was a lot more looking to the kind of psychological cultural ramifications of how this stuff affects us. And then, you know, post-moon you see a lot more discussion of like colonizing the solar system for a while. And you get these phases of going through, like as we uh, we got cyberpunk in the uh, early 80s with Neuromancer and Blade Runner and some others, and then you see extensions of that and things like Alistair Reynolds' Revelation Space where you get looked more we get more of a clear idea of what cybernetics and transhumanism might look like. So those kind of periods that you'd be passing through, the I'm sure there will be new ones all the time popping up. We can't say what they are yet. That's one of those ones we just have to wait and be surprised by. Okay. Bob asks, what megastructure do you think should be built first? Do you do you we will have the beginnings do you think we'll have the beginnings for a moon base within the decade? Love your work, Isaac. Your channel as well as my best discovery. Thank you, Bob. First, megastructure kind of depends on what you're qualifying as a megastructure. I always count the O'Neill cylinder as on the small end of what qualifies as a megastructure. Um, and yet, an O'Neill cylinder is probably a century off or close to it just because uh, you have to have the demand. Uh, it's not just, can we technologically do this? You have to have a reason why you need one of these things because until you have you know millions of people living in space, you don't build an O'Neill cylinder. Because you're not going to put all your people in one basket until you have, you know, so you need millions of people up there to be talking about building a single space station that's home to 100,000 people. And then we have the megastructures that have nothing to do with habitation. You know, um, we've got like uh, the Nikola Dyson beam or pushing lasers. Those have nothing at all to do with uh, inhabiting space, more about traveling through them. And those could be your first ones. Or a series of networks through lava tubes on the moon might be a megastructure. Same as we might say the Great Wall of China or the highway system was a megastructure. Um, somebody doing catacombs of mining throughout a, uh, a asteroid and then, you know, pressurizing all those tunnels, pair terraforming them, that might be a forced megastructure. But it's really hard to say. Uh, the orbital ring is a megastructure, and I think that one, I don't think the orbital ring would be our forced megastructure, but it would be one of the forced ones. 
because it's almost a catch-22. You don't really need an orbital ring until you start getting into the zone where you need to uh, put so much stuff into space and down from space that it starts getting realistic to think about building one. And at that point, you probably would have something like an O'Neill sound or either on the table already built. Um, <clears throat> I also never really like to count the force of any one thing as being you know, indicative. Of, you, know, you might build one example of something way before you start mass-producing them. Oh, let's see. Victor Say asks, will we see more episodes of Outward Bound, maybe about colonizing Uranus or the rings of Saturn? The um, the springtime on Mars and winter on Venus episodes, and we're going to do a summer on Jupiter episode uh, in a few months too. I don't know if we'll ever do a fall or autumn on someplace for an episode though. But uh, those are part of the Outward Bound series. They're just more focused on a kind of more classic tale for me for winter on, on Venus and springtime on Mars. For Jupiter, we're talking more about making a mini solar system and like could you turn Jupiter into a sun or, you know, other ways that you might do that. Um, but yeah, the series is not finished. Even like our moon episodes are, I think, technically part of the Outward Bound series, but it's kind of gotten a little bit hazier. The intention is not to do one on every individual planet. It never has been. For instance, there is no Saturn episodes actually on Titan. Uh, um, and we are never going to do one on Uranus. Uh, it's just... I have to be able to read a script, uh, and if I'm giggling the entire time or chuckling the whole time, I'm, I'm reading it off. It's not going to record well. <laughs> it's hard to discuss that planet without we go for thirty minutes in a row without breaking a smile. Uh, Ish, Ishmael Ark asks, "Do you think the technology for post scarcity will come first, and nations will unite around it, or that we have to find global peace before we work together on such technologies?" False dichotomy in the question. Uh, one is asking what do I think will come for us, and the other is asking is it necessary? I don't think it's necessary for countries to unify together on any particular thing other than not actually actively attacking each other with doomsday weapons for you to be post scarcely. Um, you know, if you get invented a fusion, a cheap commercial fusion reactor tomorrow, that's post scarcely. That doesn't really require you to be unified, regardless of whether that's good or not. Now, as to whether or not we would have to be a more unified world before we could be a perma post scarcity, that's a different question. Again, I say, don't think the answer is yes. To that I think, uh, on the other hand, though, would it help? Well, maybe I don't know. It depends on how you're unifying. You know, you could be unifying Genghis Khan style. I don't know if that's going to help you out much. <laughs> so, uh, but I mean. Are you unifying under one banner or are you just being friendly and having good trade relations and, you know, helping each other with extradition treaties and stuff like that? Uh, are you helping set up each other as space stations? Are you, you know, engaging in, in joint projects? This, so, again, unity is a loose concept at best, but um, I don't think it's actually necessary regardless of whether or not it might be preferable. And I'd obviously think it's potentially preferable to be able to work together and, and, and peacefully. Um Albert Jackinson asks, what are the advantages with molecular computing over classic silicon-based computing? And what are the differences between capabilities of molecular and quantum computers? They're not really related. Um, quantum computing is, well, we did an episode on quantum computing, so you can see that one for the details. And molecular computing, uh, if we're talking about that being at the molecular level, or if we're talking more like biological machines, if you can grow it, off a, like a DNA template, which is why DNA storage was so interesting. That's nice because it's not that it's super efficient. It's that, you know, I can make a device that sucks, you know, with solar panels on it that's much smaller than a tree that can suck carbon dioxide out of the air much more efficiently than a tree can. It's a lot more expensive than planting a tree. You know? So that's often the advantage of that kind of, um, you know, um, biological machine. Uh, but uh, whether or not we're talking about molecular computers, I'm just not quite sure what you mean by that. They're all made out of molecules. Uh, so if that's a new term for a certain type of computing, I'm not familiar with it. Uh, Baystead asks, what are your plans for the next videos and how do you focus for the next video? P.S. Thank you for your videos and your absolutely amazing narration. Thank you very much. Um, I think the, the the upcoming videos should have been popping up next to my head on the screen while we've been doing this. Um and uh, that's that's the schedule for this upcoming um, month. But um, we have this schedule. I, I don't know if I've linked it recently in there, but there is a spreadsheet that I keep these all on. This same when I track them on myself. That is it is publicly available to view. That uh, carries through to I want to say we're scheduled up through the middle of June, and we're written up through the end of May at the moment. Uh, getting married, so I've been trying to kind of get ahead of schedule so I don't get too distracted uh, with wedding stuff and miss an episode. Um, 
And uh, besides the ones that are coming up on the screen, if you want to take a peek at that, uh, it's it's available. Um, and I'll make sure I post it in one of the comments below if anyone wants to take a look. Um, Philippa Pasiri asks, uh, what would be the most precious commodity in an interplanetary space economy? Huh. You know, we did an episode on interplanetary trade, and one of the takeaways from that is that it's really dependent not just on um, what technology you have, uh, but uh, what everybody is actually valuing at that time. And it's not just any one given technology. For instance, you could have fusion, and in a fusion economy, hydrogen is quite valuable, relatively speaking. It's the most abundant thing in the universe, so it's not really that valuable. Um, but if you also have really, really cheap production of solar panels, then the materials that you need there for that are still more valuable because it might be that fusion only as a niche application at that time then. Um, I think what we can say is that information though will, will stay the most valuable, at least in terms of raw mass, to be sure, uh, commodity interplanetary space economy. But um, it just depends so much on what people are shipping back and forth and it wouldn't be the same in the same regions of space. Like, Near the sun, your capacity to make solar panels and you know beaming stations. That's probably going to be your most important um, part. Whereas um, out past the Kuiper Belt, whatever your power source is, there the fuel for that is likely the most important one. Uh, in the inner solar system, water is valuable. There really isn't very much of it um, outside of Earth. Uh, nitrogen is very valuable too. There's not much of it in the inner solar system. You get out into like the Kuiper Belt or you know to the Oort Cloud. These things are disgustingly common relatively speaking. Uh, we got time for a couple more questions. Um, Dagor COH asks, do you think it more likely to fully adapt humans to microgravity forced or the construction of big enough rotatable habitats? Um, we can construct the rotating habitat whenever we want to. Uh, as long as you're making at least 50 meters in diameter or so, you're going to avoid making people sick. Um, and it's not like it's that hard. You don't actually have to build a big cylinder. You could take two pods and connect them with a big tether and spin around like a bolo. Uh, not like a bolo tie, but like an actual bolo. Um, and if you can do that, then you've got that artificial gravity on board. As to adapting humans to microgravity, I guess a lot of it would depend on what we mean by adapting humans. You know, uh, if you're talking about digitally uploaded people, then, you know, you... You don't have to adapt to microgravity at all. You don't need rotating habitats. Uh, but just trying to biologically treat people, we don't know that they need a lot of treating. It might be that moon or Mars gravity is fine for us right now with no real health effects. Um, we just know that zero gravity is bad. Uh, and I guess microgravity being zero gravity, there might be things below in the next few years that might allow us to you know, work with that just fine. Or it might be something that requires such heavy overhauling of the human body that it's something you don't have until long after you got things like biological immortality. You know, so... Hard to say. Um, I think we got time for two more. Uh, White Weasel Gaming asks, more of a silly question, but if you could have your own O'Neill cylinder, what would your personal paradise in a can be like? I was thinking of a uh, fictional example. For those of you know who the uh, know the author Peter uh, Hamilton, he does the Commonwealth Saga um, and uh, other ones like Neutronium Alchemist. Now, he just had a new book out called uh, Great North Road that I still got around to reading. Um... In that, there was a character named Ozzy Isaacs, who was uh, one of the co-founders of their uh, Wormhole Network. And of course, him and his partner, Nigel, are disgustingly wealthy because they invented you know, the patent rights and all the trade for basically wormholes between planets. And so he has his own O'Neill cylinder. <laughs> it's an asteroid in another solar system. Um, and uh, normally they don't really use that because they can just go to planets. They don't really colonize into space at all. They just colonize planets. Um, similar to like in SG-1 where they just do wormholes from plant surface to plant surface. Um, but uh, he has his own O'Neill cylinder with built-in waterfalls and other things and he's the only one who lives there. <laughs> um, and that one always struck me as uh, you don't really see him spending all that much time there. And I think if I had my own O'Neill cylinder, I wouldn't spend that much time there either. I have the great pleasure of living in a rural area where there's a lot of forest already and I don't spend that much time out in them. Um, probably less than I should. I should get some more air. But uh, if I had my own O'Neill cylinder, I guess it probably would be forested in lakes. Because, again, I, I like the climate where I'm at. Uh, maybe a little bit less snow. Um, but uh, kind of the, the uh, Great Lakes, uh, U.S. Great Lakes, uh, U.S. Canada Great Lakes region in terms of climate. All right. And I guess we'll go ahead and uh, close out on that one. Oh, okay. one last question uh, from Beastie again. 
simulation theory. Um, that's not really a question on that one. Are we doing another episode on simulation theory anytime soon? And that actually is going to be coming up in uh, our upcoming life uh, episode, uh, uh, Life as a Digital Bean, which I think is in late April or early May. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that kind of concept there. So we got the schedule up for the upcoming months for uh, all the episodes in March. Uh, and uh, if you do want to see what the actual roster looks like for April and May, I will go ahead and post that link in a little bit into the comments on this section of the video. If I missed your questions today, feel free to go ahead and leave those in the comments. And I'll try to get back to them later this evening and get them answered. Uh, as to that, though, otherwise, thank you for joining us and we will see you on Thursday. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you Thursday.